If you've got your Bibles, your Acts journals, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, mostly today. We're picking up a, a passage we started last week, but it's important to understand when we read the Bible, when, when I talk about what's going on in the Bible, because every week our messages come straight out of God's Word. That is just one of the core values around this place that will never change. Here's a reason why. There's three things that we can always look for in God's Word. There's the text. What is God doing? Well, what's going on in these verses? And then there's the context. What is it saying to the people that are a part of the action that's recorded in the Bible? And then there's a third part, and this is the part that we don't always like to do. It's the application. What is God saying to me today? And this text today, if you choose to look at it with open eyes and an open heart, might not all feel so good. We met a guy last week named Simon. Simon was a showman. He was a magician. He was really uh, concerned about what people thought about him. Well, part of the passage includes him today, but... We don't just hear about his background, we hear about his heart. And for us to to really do the hard work of looking at the Bible, we've got to say, God, what are you saying to me today in your word? And so as we go through it, God may challenge you to look at your own heart as we look at this guy named Simon. So we pick up in Acts 4, we're going to start in verse 14. Remember now what we've just covered The Christian church has been scattered throughout the near Middle East outside of Jerusalem. There was this guy named Stephen. He was a powerful speaker. He was one of the leaders in the early church. And he had just been the first martyr in the Christian church. Saul, a guy who we get to know later on as Paul, stood by and nodded his approval at the stoning death of Stephen. That began the persecution, and the Christians started scattering all over the place. And they were all given the same message, stop talking about Jesus or else. And so what did they do? They went to new towns and villages and remote areas, and they talked about Jesus. They couldn't not. They had been so profoundly changed by meeting the risen Christ. And so we're picking it up where the church is scattered. And and you would think that the church is going to kind of start falling apart and disappearing because that was the whole point of the persecution. But in fact, as so often happens in history, when Christians are persecuted and they're challenged to live out and to show their faith in new and brave ways, the church grows. And that's what we see happening. That's what's happening here. The church is beginning to move into Samaria. Verse 14 Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. There's this guy named Philip. He starts preaching in Samaria of all places, the good news of Jesus. He's a part of the persecution. He's been scattered. The Samaritans begin to respond in huge numbers to the word about Jesus, the Son of God. Now, that doesn't sound like a real big deal to us, but going back to context, what was happening with the people of that day, it was big news because the Samaritans were not loved by the Jewish people. See, the Jewish people were very proud of their heritage. They were very proud of the purity of their lineage. And the Samaritans claimed to worship the same God, but they were only half Jewish. They were also half Gentile, which is what we are, non-Jewish. If you're not raised of a Jewish tradition, Jewish legacy, Jewish lineage, you're called a Gentile. Everybody else in the world is a Gentile. And the Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. 
The idea that the Samaritans would claim anything that was consistent or similar to what the Jews would claim was absolutely against everything that a good Jew could handle. That's why when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, how the, the religious people passed this man by, but this Samaritan man came and, and patched this man up and took him to a place and paid for him to get well again, the Jewish people didn't believe it was possible. They didn't believe anything good could come from a Samaritan person. Not a good thought, not a good act, not a good deed, not a good word. And yet, the good news of Jesus has taken hold in Samaria. And so that's part of what the Jewish folks are trying to understand. And so it it goes back and the word is given and Peter and John come to check on what it is that's happening. Not because they doubt it, but because this is something worthy of news. It needs to be said that Philip, the guy who begins to get lost in this story, is having a ministry like few people in history have ever been able to be on the front end of being a part of. It was kind of his Billy Graham moment. All of these people gathering and coming to faith as a result of Philip's preaching. It was an incredible ministry that Philip had going on. We're going to hear what God does to it next week. Verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit? It wasn't that they weren't believing that it was real. They wanted to make sure that this outpouring that was beginning a new church among a new people was done the right and proper way. They wanted to make sure that the Holy Spirit was a part of it. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. The Holy Spirit had come to people, but not yet to this group of people. They had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what does the home church in Jerusalem do? It sends out two of their most senior leaders to make sure that this new church plant gets off to the right and proper start. They're concerned that they pray that the Holy Spirit is the one who is in the middle of and is the foundation of this radical outpouring of response to the name of Jesus. And so they laid hands on people and prayed that the Holy Spirit might fill them with the supernatural power of God that Simon had claimed his own as we looked at just last week. Simon had accepted praise for being, if you remember, the great power of God. He loved that people said that. It was good for his income. It was good for his reputation. But see, the thing is that Simon was not really the great power of God. The Holy Spirit is the great power of God. And these guys come down, Peter and John come down and pray for the real power of God to be given to ordinary people, just like you and I. That they might supernaturally charge their faith life and supernaturally charge their witness as the early church continues to grow. This is in direct contrast to what Simon has been after. Simon isn't concerned about the church. Simon isn't concerned about whether or not the church grows or Jesus' name is made great. Simon is concerned about Simon. He loved that people called him the real or the great power of God. That was good for his business. But what he's finding out is he's not actually the great power of God. And the other thing that's really cool about this is, still today, God gives his Holy Spirit to believers. The Holy Spirit still comes upon and indwells and fills believers today in order to supernaturally charge our faith. All we have to do is ask. About two years ago, Pastor Patrick and I took a trip together. 
We wanted to go look at some other properties and churches, and we met with some people who were doing church design, and, and it really got our conversation going about what God might be doing in this place. And we got really excited about it, and I realized that my prayer for our church began to change. Because it hit me that we're sitting on 70 acres. What church that's a, a startup church in a little town like New London and Spicer asks for 70 acres? Clearly, God has got something planned for us that we hadn't thought about. And the only way that we're ever going to realize that is through the supernatural power of God, not just in us as believers, but through finances and all kinds of other things. And I began to pray that the Open Door Christian Church would be filled with people that God would fill to overflowing with the power of His Holy Spirit, that our faith would be supernaturally charged, our witness to the world would be divinely charged through the Holy Spirit, and that God would bless as we go out and talk to people about Jesus, that God would give us receptive ears. And that if, if we were to stay on this property and to do anything with it, that God would supernaturally charge through the Holy Spirit our generosity, that we could live out the full call that God has on us as a church. Well, since that time, we've realized that we haven't just grown as a congregation that worships here in this place. We've grown as a congregation that worships all over the place. We've got probably more than likely right now this morning, we've got a guy named Curtis who's watching out in Bozeman who's with us nearly every week. We've got a lady named Sherry who's in Florida who checks in nearly every week. I happen to know for a fact that in Fargo, my daughter Kirsten and her husband Michael and Zuri, because Will is on another trip, are watching in Fargo. And we've grown. And that might feel really good, but it really doesn't do anything if we're not supernaturally charged by the Holy Spirit to share the good news of Jesus. And that's what Peter and John came to this outpouring to make sure happened. And so in verse 17, they laid their hands on them and the people, they received the Holy Spirit. This is one of the examples of why we pray the way that we do around here. We talk about prayer as one of our three foundational things that we believe in so much. But maybe you've been here on a Sunday where someone has gone on to missions or they've gone on to another ministry somewhere else, or there's just something really, really significant in their life. And COVID has kind of wreaked a little havoc with this, but we invite people forward. And then we invite you, all of you as the congregation, the people of God, you who are the open door Christian to come and surround them. And if you're close, we say you feel free to lay your hands on them. If not, put your hand on the shoulder of someone behind you. This is where that comes from. I remember when we first did it the first time, uh, we invited people to come forward. And there's about 15 people that came forward because we came from church backgrounds where that was not done. And I remember saying, someday, someday I pray that when we invite you to do this, the seat's all empty and everybody comes forward. The last time that we prayed, I think there was... A bunch of visitors that didn't quite know what was going on, and they stayed in their seats, which I totally understand. I would have too. But all the rest of you came forward. This is why. This is why the, the disciples came down and they laid their hands on them as they received the Holy Spirit. As we're praying for people, we're not praying our best for them. We're praying God's best for them. And there's this significant progression that has begun in Scripture. If you go back to Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came among the disciples and they began to speak in languages that they didn't know. We call it speaking in tongues. And a whole bunch of people that had been gathered in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost heard the good news of Jesus all at the same time in their own language. The Bible says 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized that day. 3,000. And then the Holy Spirit goes on. And now Peter and John are coming into Samaria. And they're praying that the Holy Spirit fills these people in Samaria, which are not just Jewish, but they're also partly Gentile who live outside of Jerusalem. 
And then as we continue to read, we find out that the Holy Spirit continues to spread throughout the world and the Christian church and outside of Jerusalem. And to a whole lot of people who are not Jewish but who are Gentile are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is on the move. When we talk about this place, we talk about being a movement of God. What God is doing here is so much bigger than any one of us. But we get the privilege of being a part of it. And it's all driven and fueled by the Holy Spirit, just like what's happening here in Acts. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he asked the money. Simon, who has accepted Jesus, but hasn't been transformed, he's not the new creation. He still thinks like the old Simon, and the old Simon thinks, what's good for me? This is the part where we have to be willing to step into this text and say, where are we really? Maybe you consider yourself like Peter and John. You're the one that people are privileged to have lay hands on and pray for them. Maybe you consider yourself one of the new believers like the Samaritans that are just saying, you know, bring, bring me all the God you can. I'll take all the Holy Spirit you'll give me, God. Or maybe you're like me. And you realize you've got to be honest and get to our motives because sometimes they're not entirely pure. Sometimes they're not entirely what it is that God would have for us. And Simon, who has done the right thing, but he hasn't been changed, he hasn't given himself over to Jesus, that he's a new creation, he still thinks like Simon. And so he goes, okay, they're laying on hands, they're getting the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give them money, I want to buy this, because I want it, because that's going to be good for business. I'm going to be able to do an awful lot with that. And so he says in 19, give me this power also, that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon was naive because he was a new believer. He also wasn't a changed believer. He was still the old creation. He was still old Simon. He was arrogant. He was arrogant to think that that power somehow could have something to do with him. But more than all of that, he was selfish. What was in his heart was only looking for how he could grow Simon's little world. And when we read this text, we can identify with whichever character we want, but I challenge you to question if there's any Simon in you. I've been struggling with this thing for two weeks. I don't want to say that there's Simon in me, but you know what? i got moments where I'm selfish. Steve wants what Steve wants. And I realize that's part of being a Christian, but it's part of, it's part of being a sinful person. And what Simon wanted was power. What, what the original Greek, the word that it conveys, is that he wanted authority. He realized this authority came from somewhere else. These guys had a ministry. They were doing something that other people weren't doing. And he wanted the authority to be able to do it. And so he thought he could pay for it because he wanted to impress the crowds. He knew if that he could do what the apostles were doing, surely he would be rich and he'd be famous in a hurry. That if the crowds used to gather before and call him the great power of God, imagine what they would do now. So Simon is the first man in the brand new Christian church who tries to capitalize on the name of Jesus for personal gain. The problem is the Christian church has been plagued for 2,000 years by men and women who continue to try to capitalize on the name of Jesus for their own personal gain. And we've got to be careful that that doesn't become us because it can happen so subtly and so quickly. They don't want to make the name of Jesus great. They want to make their own name great. They want to make themselves look good. Simon is the first case of the virus of power in the Christian church that's held on for 2,000 years. What are the fights about in churches? What do people fight about? About who's got power? 
It works out like this. If enough of us like one kind of music and there's more of us that like this kind than like this kind, then we've got the power, we've got the numbers, you have to change. It's about power. Who gets to say what? Where does the money get spent? Where are our resources going to go? Who's going to make the decision? What is going to happen up in front on a Sunday morning? The fights in the church are all about power. And it began with Simon who had this selfish desire to buy the power of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. And it's a virus that still plagues the church. But Peter speaks up and he says to him, may your silver perish with you. What that what it says in the Greek is, may your silver perish with you. May it utterly be destroyed, utterly and completely demolished, banished, banished, obliterated. May your silver along with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That is a strong rebuke from Peter. It seems almost out of place when you think about it. But realize, Peter is speaking to Simon in front of this whole crowd of new believers. And they're all trying to understand, what does it mean to be a Christian now? That's not what they call themselves yet, but that's the word that we'd use. What does it mean to live this life? How do I have to think? How do I have to act? And what Peter is doing is making sure they all understand that this isn't it. This is not the way that you act. So when they meet Simon, they find him demand a man that has to be dealt with swiftly and strongly. So when Peter makes this statement about his money perishing along with you, it's almost like he's condemning Simon to death for the state of his heart. It might, that might seem harsh. But as we go on and read more of what's in the Bible, the idea of being able to buy the power of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit with money is simply not acceptable. God has no place for that. Not in the world, not in the church. And so Peter makes a very strong statement because everything that we have, starting with the Holy Spirit and Jesus' death for us on the cross, all the way through everything else that you call yours, is a gift from God. And while we use money to transact things here on earth, money doesn't buy the gift or the grace of God. When you think about everything as a gift from God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus and his death on the cross, God's resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the forgiveness of our sins, our salvation, everything that we have is a gift that we cannot buy. God has simply given it to us. So there are some preachers out there that want to say that some of those things are for sale for the the highest dollar or the way that they say it, the most that you can give. All of those are really a gift of God's mercy and God's generosity. And our response isn't to pay for them. Our response is to live differently because of them. Verse 21, he goes on, he says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart isn't right before God. Peter drops a smack down on Simon and says, You are so wrong, you don't even know how wrong you are. You've got no place in this discussion at all. Peter draws this line. Between Peter's leadership and the power of God and the investment or the lack of investment that Simon has in the events that are happening around him. And he says, you've got no part. You've got no place in this whatsoever because your heart isn't right before God. You're selfish and you're self-interested. And you got to figure Simon's heart rate is going up a little bit at this point. Peter's absolutely clear that Simon and his selfishness have absolutely no place in this conversation whatsoever, much less his money. It's a good reminder and it's a good warning for us. What Peter calls out in Simon is the condition of his heart. 
He calls out the condition of his heart, that his heart isn't right before God, and he approached God with selfish motives for personal gain. And so it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if I met Peter, what would Peter say about my heart? What what would he tell me about the condition of my heart? What would he say to you? If you were to have a one-on-one conversation with this Peter of Scripture, and he just cut to, ooh, the worst of who we are, what would he say? And then here's the thing that really gets me. We can feel pretty good that we're not going to have that conversation, but God already knows. God already knows what's in my heart. God already knows what's in your heart. And the Bible tells us over and over and over that God still loves us. God still loves us despite what's in our heart. And so what does he tell him to do? He tells him to do exactly what the disciples have been telling everyone from day one. It isn't just that you say, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll accept you into my heart. There's something that happens before that. Verse 22, repent, he says. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. Repent of your self-indulgent wickedness because you are full of your own sin. I wonder if that isn't a message that we need to lovingly hear more often. I wonder if that's not a message that we need to hear ourselves. Because to repent is where all of us need to begin. We can be so sure that we're right. We can be so sure. At least we're better than the other guy, right? At least we're not like her. I don't have his issues. I don't have her problems. And yet, throughout Scripture, when we come to Jesus, it begins with repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. That's where we all need to begin, not just Simon. It's interesting that Peter addresses the intent of Simon's heart because God knows our heart. And at the end of the day, the only one that truly does is God. He is the one that made it. He placed it in us. And God knows what's there. Verse 23, Peter says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. I'm not sure exactly what that means. So I went back to the Bible that we give away. If you don't have a Bible and you want one and you want to start reading, we give away what's called a New Living Translation New Believers Bible. It's just easier to read than the ESV is sometimes. The reason I choose this one is because the the word-to-word translation is really good. But sometimes in a case like this, it's a little confusing What the NLT Bible, and Pastor Patrick would love to give you one of these after the service if you don't have a Bible. The NLT says this, For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and you're held captive by sin. Peter is speaking to the condition of Simon's heart as well as his mind. Simon is driven by jealousy of the ministry and the power that these real men of God have. He's had people who have said to him, this is the great power of God, but Simon has known that he isn't because all he's ever had is a bunch of tricks and a magic show. And he shows up here and Simon is confronted with Philip and Peter and John, real men of God who have the real power of God through God's Holy Spirit. And Simon is bitterly jealous of the ministry that God has entrusted to them. Verse 24, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Basically, what he says, look at guys, I don't even know how to pray, but I don't want that to happen. Will you please pray for me that God doesn't do all that? He doesn't even know how to pray for himself. We've got prayer corners in the back with the lights on. We've got people in those prayer corners after every service because you know what? Sometimes we just don't know how to pray for ourselves. 
It's nothing to be embarrassed about. But we've got people who God has gifted with an ability and a desire to pray for other people. If you're at that point where you say, I, I don't even know how to pray. After the service, go to one of those prayer corners. There's, there's people there every week that would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Now, it's interesting. Simon disappears at this point. The Bible doesn't really talk about him anymore. History does, but the Bible doesn't. Second century, there was a guy named Justin Martyr. He wrote that after being sent straight by Peter, Simon got out ahead of all of this persecution and made his way to Rome with his newfound knowledge and how it is that these great men of God prayed for and, and gifted people with the gift of the Holy Spirit and how that all worked, and he understood it. And so he brought his magic show that was now new and improved and this new bunch of hocus-pocus, and he started his own church when he got to Rome. Hippolytus, another guy who wrote about it, he talks about a lot of the life and the, the religious hogwash that Simon tried to pass off as legitimate to the point that it worked enough that his religion actually gained a foothold and grew. And if you want to learn more about what happens to Simon, it isn't biblical, but Justin Martyr and Hippolytus both wrote about it. It isn't that he stopped here and learned his lesson. He took off and he kept on. Verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is Peter and John again, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. As long as they were in Samaria and they were heading back to Jerusalem, they just continued to preach the good news, going straight into the eye of the persecution storm. They kept talking about Jesus. But what's this passage really all about? Is it really all about Simon or is it really all about you and I? I think God wanted us to know who Simon was and wanted us to know some of the pitfalls that our hearts can, can stumble into. So I wonder if it isn't more about us, the, the understanding of our hearts. For some people, maybe it's a recognition that, that what drives them is more than anything that lust for power that Simon had. At any price, it, it didn't matter because we still that, see that happening in the church. For some people, it's about selfishness and, and our fascination with quick forgiveness, which the American church has been so good about preaching. Not repentance, which is where it begins for a believer, but with that quick forgiveness. For some people like Simon, their, their heart is only interested in outer appearances and looking like we've got our life together, while on the inside, everything is a mess. See, but God knows the truth of who we are. See, we love the idea of having our sins forgiven, but we're not so keen on the idea that God actually knows our hearts of sin. And yet in this text, it is so clear. So I ask you then, where's your heart today? You feel like you, you're right with God, or do you have some work to do? Maybe you like taking the name Christian and being understood as that, but like Simon, you realize you're not really living that life. Maybe you're more like Simon than you want to admit, and you're really just a great pretender. Because that's who the evidence of history tells us that Simon was. Wherever you are, God fully knows the condition of your heart. And no matter what it is, God wants you to fully know him. That was why he sent us Jesus. See, if you are admitting to yourself that maybe you're more like Simon than you really want to be. I believe God would want you to know today that he knows you. He knows your heart. He knows what you really think. He knows who you really are. And he still loves you. See, the reason that God sent Jesus 
to die on the cross as a display of his love for us and as a payment for our sinful hearts is that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay at the place that we are, but to repent and to receive forgiveness and to go closer to him and to grow in our likeness with Jesus. And so wherever you are today, you know what? That's where you are. But God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay there. Simon had more than he could handle, and he took off and left. doesn't seem that Simon grew one bit more. He wasn't interested in it. But maybe you are. Maybe you are interested in growing. Maybe you are interested in not just knowing God better, but allowing God to know you better. So those people that are in the back corners, they're here to pray with you. They'll keep everything you share with them completely confidential. And maybe if you're at that point, you don't even know how to pray. You know what? They can do that for you, too. And so if that's tugging on your heart, if you need to get up and go right now, get up and go right now. Because the fact is, God is waiting for you. Maybe you know who God is. You grew up in the church and you're just finding your way back. But you know you don't know God personally. Yeah, you know who God is. You don't argue that he's there. You even accept the idea of who Jesus was. But you're not living your life for him. Maybe... Maybe talking to somebody else, maybe talking to one of those folks in the prayer corner is a place you need to start today. That you say, God, I know who you are, but I want to let you know all of me. Because God knows our hearts and God wants all of us to know the depths of his heart. God loves you so much where you are today, but God loves you too much to let you stay that way. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus your whole life. I got news for you, this side of heaven, there's still work that we can do. We still can grow to become more and more like Jesus. We can grow more and more to be a disciple of his. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And maybe this prayer is for you and maybe it's not. And if it's not, then I'm just going to ask you to listen. But I'm going to invite you to, to jump into this text and say, God, I, just, I want you to know my heart. I want you to know you for all you are, God. I want, you, I want to know you and I want you to know me. So let's pray, God. Some of us today, and I'll start with me, need to ask for forgiveness. We need to repent because our hearts haven't been what you created them to be. They've been what we've created them to be. Maybe, maybe we spend a good part of our life honoring you, but we also spend an awful lot of, to- of our time taking care of our own selfish interests. So God, as we gather today and we look at this man like Simon, because he's as much unlike as just about any, us as anybody in the Bible, but... His heart is so much like so many of ours. Our hearts, God, are so easily distracted and our our affections are so quickly taken away. We give our attention to so many other things, not you, God. Forgive us for that. You, in your wisdom and your mercy and your love, give us the chance to choose. And your greatest desire is that we choose you, that we choose Jesus. But God, we choose so many other things. We choose all of the opportunities that our part of the world lets us, lets us engage in because we've only got two days on the weekend. Most folks work for five, go to school for five. We've got two days on our own and we want to take them and do with them what we want to do with them. Whether it's hunting or fishing or shopping or, or day trips. God, so often we choose TV and technology over your word. God, forgive us when we don't put you in your rightful place, and that is first in our lives. We choose choose kids' sports over time with our church and our church family. 
We choose our own fun and pleasure, whether it's just lazy time or golf or travel or sleeping in or just taking it easy because we say that we deserve time at home and relax. All of those things are things that we choose over you, God. We choose to chase over power and position. We choose to chase our finances and our profession. And even us who are in the church, Christians who know better, God, we choose other things over relishing our time and our place with you. But God, just like Simon, you know our hearts. We don't fool you. You know us to the bottom of our souls because you created us. You know our true hearts and you still love us. You still sent us Jesus. So God, I just ask that you would send us the way Peter and John came to the church in Samaria. God, I ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit. That you would send us your Holy Spirit in a new and a fresh and an overwhelming way that we would want nothing more in this life than you. That we would want to know you, we would want to spend time with you, and we would want you to know all of us. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus, that that he was obedient to you and he loved us so much that he gave his life on the cross and then that you raised him from the grave. And God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's in your Holy Spirit that we're able to come to faith, that we're able to, to make any changes at all to become more like you, to become more like Jesus. So God, we ask for forgiveness for making the things of this world a higher priority than you. And we ask in your Holy Spirit, God, that you would set us straight. That you would convict us of where our hearts really are. And help to take us to a place that you created our hearts to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read something from Psalm 51 because you can take a message like this and it feels like, man, I'm going home. I don't even know where to start. Psalm 51, starting in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the thing. We don't have to fix our hearts on our own. We cannot do that. We're just going to make more of a mess of them. What Psalmist tells us, what Psalm 51 says, God creates in us a clean heart. We cooperate. Where we run into trouble is we don't like to cooperate with God. God does the work and we cooperate with him, which means because of Jesus, we have hope.